Welcome to Into the Well. I'm your host, Ryan Wilms. I started this show as a place to share my experiences and my journey towards living authentically and mindfully, and also to learn from those who are truly walking the path, healing themselves and inspiring others. By balancing the mental, physical, emotional, and spiritual, we can learn to live in harmony with ourselves and our environment. We'll be exploring different tools and modalities used to create sustainable well-being for a fulfilling life. So thank you for joining me. On this episode of the podcast, I have a little bit of an unexpected guest. The people behind landscape architecture firm Terramoto, based here in Los Angeles. I chat with David Godshell and Jenny Jones about the evolution of the firm, the ethos, how they connect to nature, their sort of unique approach to touching the landscape as lightly as possible, listening to the trees, and how weeding our gardens can be just as good as therapy. I like to walk the line between creative industry and also well-being, and I feel like the work that they do literally and figuratively walks that line as well. Not only creating a deep connection with them and their work and the plants and habitats that they work in, but connecting their clients with the with the land that they're on, with the houses that they're in, bringing in more of a art-like ethos and interesting philosophy when it comes to landscape architecture. I found their work through Instagram and was immediately captured by it and um, we also touch on a a smaller newer project that they've been working on called test plot where they help to revitalize local parks with uh, volunteer work and planting and nurturing the lower level bush covering so i hope you enjoy this conversation it's a little bit um, unique for what i've been having on the show but uh, it was great and really inspired by their work and Check it out online, or if you're in LA or San Francisco, maybe you can drive around or, or find out more about the test plot and how you can get involved either with the work they're doing or their suggestions for getting involved in the land that you live on and developing that connection. Thanks. Terramoto started about seven years ago, I realized, uh, which is crazy. Um, and uh, it was, I have a business partner named uh, Alan Peroy, uh, and he runs the San Francisco office. And he and I were uh, landscape architects who met while working for another firm, which is pretty typical mm-hmm. uh, people who end up going and starting their own thing. Uh, and we sat next to each other at this really lovely office called Surface Design. Uh, and it essentially, over several years of working there uh, and getting to know one another, uh, we kind of slowly, uh, quietly came to the conclusion that we wanted to start a practice of our own. Uh, and uh, so eventually, it, though it made no sense, uh, I was moving to Los Angeles and Alan had no interest in moving to Los Angeles. So though we were splitting up geographies, at the same time, we decided to more or less start the office. Um, and early days, I went up there a lot, and he came down a lot. And it's naturally kind of evolved into not, I never go up there, and he never goes down here because it makes more sense for I to run the LA office with Jenny now and for Alan uh, to run his projects in the Bay Area. Uh, we also used to not have kids. We both have kids. Things like that change. Um, mm-hmm. So, 
Yeah. Uh, and uh, that's like kind of like the more, more boring, pragmatic kind of things. But I guess like ideologically or philosophically, uh, we wanted to create an office uh, that both uh, did projects differently and built projects that looked and felt and acted uh, and like resonated differently um, than what we were seeing uh, in most like American landscape architecture. And then we also wanted to create a practice that was also fundamentally different in the way it was like structured, in the way we pay our employees, in the way that we give people like uh, really like a ton of autonomy and let people kind of have their own, in a way, practices within the practice. Um, so yeah, um, that's a, a in, in a nutshell, that's kind of like the origin story and like the why, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. And I guess uh, when I say I'm being vague, when I say we wanted to do projects that were different, uh, to be more specific in that regard, um, we wanted to, it was always our goal to do projects uh, that uh, resonated at a conceptual level. And we were always open for those kind of conceptual philosophical journeys that we go on to be wildly different from project to project. Uh, and you'll, you've perhaps noticed in our work that though there's, maybe like a common thread or like in a common aesthetic through line uh we don't really have like a very particular style we're kind of a little bit all over the place uh and that's largely a function of the fact that we let our landscape creations be the manifestation of client wishes we believe deeply in like listening to the site and looking at the site jenny is like a pro at that um client dialogues and uh yeah just kind of like letting ourselves kind of wander mentally uh and then sometimes we know what like this concept is up front and sometimes we don't sometimes we just have to start and finish the thing and look back at it and so yeah uh, to do to create gardens that are explorations of like ideas and culture and uh yeah life jenny do you have anything to add to that i'm gonna add be just because i was not there when terramoto was started and i was one of the like Terramoto devotees who, you know, came up to you on the street and said, hire me. Um, you know, I, I came to Terramoto, I found, yeah, I, I found Terramoto on the internet. Actually, no, I met David. He was doing a pro bono across the street from my, a pro bono project across the street from my house. I Googled the firm and I just immediately knew I wanted to work with him because of the emphasis on process and the celebration of the process so so many landscape architecture websites and publications and articles you see the finished product and the plants are are you know nicely grown in and everything looks perfect in the picture and i what attracted me to terramoto and i think this is a philosophy that runs through everything that david and alan have been doing from the beginning is and you now an, and me now is um, an emphasis uh, on process and a celebration of the work that it takes to get there. And, you know, rather than this idea of a landscape being a static, beautiful picture, mm -hmm. it's, it is about the process. Um, and we tried to instill that in our clients as much as possible. It's, it's hard in LA um, because everybody has a gardener, but we, mm -hmm. are, we love when we see our clients get into the process and when they, um, become gardeners themselves. The other yeah. thing that really drew me to Terramoto was the simplicity of the designs 
Um, and I think David, maybe you and I have talked about this in the past about how part of what compelled you and Alan to kind of break away was, um, just design getting way too complicated and fussy. Complexity, complexity, but too much complexity. Yeah. There became a point where like the height of the pinnacle of landscape architecture was if your design was super, super complex and Mm. curves and waves and parametric design. And it all kind of comes from academia and what is trendy in academia. And then that filters out into the firms and basically tech led people down this like sort of parametric uh, path um, where it all became about the sexiest materials and the sexiest design. And Mm -hmm. that was a turnoff to me because I felt like um, when I was working at bigger firms, I felt like landscape architects should all be environmentalists and Mm -hmm. these designs are not sustainable you know, the material waste that goes into building a very complicated deck that curves and undulates and Mm -hmm. those, those things can be wasteful. And yes, they're visually stunning and they look beautiful, but are they really good for the environment? So that was a question for me that uh, attracted me to Terramoto as well. Yeah, that's great. I mean, there's so many, so many interesting things in there. Yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not somebody who's like up on landscape architecture trends myself. Um, what? No, yeah, surprisingly. <laughs> you know, I, I've always been, you know, interested in and drawn to it. As in my late teens and early twenties, I spent some summers doing some landscaping, and my brother is actually in the landscape design industry up in Vancouver. So, you know, I've always had a, an eye here and there, and just like an, an eye for what I aesthetically find appealing. So. You know, it's interesting to to think about this, you know, area, the space of creativity, working with clients in these types of ways, you know, where there's so many different dynamics. Like you said, there's the academia side of it. And, um, you know, it sounds like there's been trends where people are trying to, you know, almost make the land an extension of the house with that more like technical um, approach, whereas it feels like what you guys are doing is is making the land more connected to the land and maybe making the house more connected to the land through that connection as well. And I think that your sort of comment on, on processes is cool as well, because, you know, on one hand, you look at some of the work that you've done on the website or Instagram and it feels very natural, but then you get to see the process photos that you share. And it's like, Oh, actually there's been like a lot of work to make it feel this sort of natural, organic way. Um, So it's this funny sort of, you know, coming at it from both sides. It's like, it looks really natural and feels like maybe it's been like this and you guys added a couple of stones, but in in reality, there's a a lot more going on to it. And, you know, I think that, yeah, yeah. you know, it's, it's interesting as well. You shared about each project sort of, you know, listening to the land, listening to the client. Do you find it, you know, a lot of people will sort of be very easy for them to imprint their idea and their aesthetic, you know, almost like a blueprint onto each project and just edit it a little bit. But is it challenging to sort of wipe the slate clean as you go into each project? Or is that something that's natural for you? We don't necessarily know. Like, sometimes I feel like it's intuitive. Like, we'll get to a site and uh, like Jenny recently did a beautiful project in Altadena that was like essentially within a grove of coast live oaks. 
So for example, in that context, uh, we're already the like ecological tone or the botanical like tone of the project is kind of already set. Uh, and because we're in essentially like environmentalists in many regards, uh, and we respect those pre-existing conditions and, and those tones, like on a project like that, like, oh, we, we kind of know what we're going to do. The parameters are, are already set botanically because mm-hmm. Quercus agrifolia, the specific kind of tree, has uh, creates dry dappled shade and uh, only very certain kind of plants will tolerate and thrive in those conditions. So that's like a very specific example. But then oftentimes, more often than not, the more urban a project is, the more we are kind of free to choose our own adventure. Uh, simply because in urban context, though, of course, sun exposure and uh, orientation of the site and existing trees are tend to be important. They, it tends to be more of a tabula rasa. Uh, like a clean slate, basically, from which we can kind of depart. Um, so, yeah. And then increasingly left to our own devices, when the client isn't like really setting a strong tone, we're skewing increasingly like using kind of California natives and super regionally appropriate plants. Uh, but uh, that's also been an evolution. We weren't necessarily so uh, disposed that way even four or five years ago. So, yeah, uh, we're always changing and evolving as an office. And mm-hmm. it's oftentimes it's... Uh, from a botanical perspective, uh, it takes a while to figure out what it is we want to do and why. Uh, and it's usually conversations with the client and studying existing conditions and just like walking around the neighborhood uh, mm-hmm. and looking at like the little vernacular things that like people are doing and then sometimes riffing on that. Um, so, yeah. Um, or sometimes it's like it's like a neighbor ha- will have a really stunning tree that and because the lots in LA are also small and everybody's crammed in together that tree that neighbor's tree really influences the site and then right. we'll kind of the whole design will all be about the neighbor's tree which philosophically is kind of nice um that yeah. kind of like binds us all together yeah that's cool it's you know like a charming element you just never expect to have that sort of influence from the outside anyways yeah um i wonder you know when you first started and 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 broke away you know you felt that there was a need to do something different to do, to do something unique and how the approach was then like were clients more i want it to be like this as opposed to years down the road now where they i imagine are probably a little bit more trusting given the like body of work that you've produced or is it still sort of a mixed bag you know it depends on the client and increasingly we are less interested in working on projects uh where people know what they want Mm -hmm. if you know what you want don't hire terremoto uh we're we're just like less interested in that Mm -hmm. would you agree with that denny uh jenny totally yeah we have clients that sometimes we have clients that come to us and their their pinterest board is already all laid out and that's it's actually harder uh, you think it was e- you think it would be easier because they're setting you all up and you just have to kind of riff off that, but it it's harder actually because Pinterest is also dangerous. A client will see a picture, they want us to replicate it exactly. We can't because we can't get that material here in California, and that's a photo that was taken in the Midwest or on the East Coast. Or, so yeah, it's when clients have super specific ideas about the, what they want. Sometimes we we say could just hire a contractor <laughs> you don't need yeah, us yeah. and also early days because we didn't have that body of work uh 
we would probably be more, we, we put up with a lot. Uh, we've like, uh, I mean, Jenny's been with the office near what, five years now. So it's like, Almost, we've yeah. Built, yeah, we've gone through a lot to get to where we are. And early days, we, we did, we would kind of put up with a little bit more fussiness in that regard. Mm-hmm. Whereas now we're a little bit more like specific and clear with people. And if you know what you want, uh, don't hire us because we don't, uh, you can just like see that through on your own. If you want this to be more of like a conversation and a weird journey that we're going to go on together, like by all means we're in. Um, so yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, that's great. You've been able to get to the point where you can, you can do that. Cause I do feel like across, you know, fashion and publishing and design as well. There's just so many reference images that people just want that. And it really, it takes away from the creative process and that journey of exploration, like you're saying, and just being able to create the unknown, you know, it's, it's, it's so much less of like, okay, this photographer or this designer does great work. I'm going to trust that they're going to do more great work. It's more like, I'm going to hire them to make this image that I already have. Right. And, right. Yeah. That's weird. So weird. If you think that weirds me out when people are like, I want to, I want my garden to look like this picture so that I can take a picture of it. You're like, but that picture already exists. And then the emphasis just becomes on the image, which is just very problematic when you're talking about landscapes, but uh, it's a weird, it's a weird concept to think about in our society, how, how much, how important the image is. And it really centers is the center of so many conversations. And it's a funny thing because because gardens are explicitly not images, right? Uh, mm-hmm. They're like these living things that exist in three dimensional space. And a thing, but that being said, historically speaking, and even of Terramoto, the way you convey, the way you illustrate what you've made with the garden is through a, a two dimensional representation of it, like a nice, pretty picture. Mm-hmm. Um, so, a thing that we're like in the early phases of exploring. Uh, and trying to figure out is uh, how we can also represent our gardens in a different way. And uh, anyways, uh, we're like moving slowly towards like starting to take videos uh, of our gardens um, mm-hmm. that like uh, maybe are shot over like several days and or several seasons um, so that there's, it's almost like there's something, the image falls short uh, in yeah. terms of uh, the two dimensional image falls quite short in terms of representing like what a garden is as a living breathing ecological thing so we're trying to we're in like early phases of trying to rock that boat a little bit as well so yeah no i think that's super interesting and like that comparison to the image you know where things can be a derivative but the reality of a garden even if it's a derivative of it in another image it's going to live and take on its whole life of its own after that i wonder you know with the projects you've done years ago now if you have learned over those years of seeing how it's grown and evolved that you can, you can learn from a project from four or five years ago from seeing what's happened in the natural environment and apply that to a project that you're starting now. So, yeah, it's a funny thing in that when we finish a garden, it's actually just getting started. Right. Right. Uh, And I had this conversation with Sam, a young man at our office yesterday because he like just finished a project in Montecito and they like just finished the gravel driveway and he sent me these pictures of it. And I was like, Ugh. and it was one of those things where I said to him, he's like, I don't like the way it looks either. And I was like, you know what though? The more I think about it, my, my least favorite moment in making gardens is 
the moment it's brand new and just finished. That's like, I prefer, I prefer it like 80% done where it's still a construction site and there's still process and it's like, it's messy. And there's like, like people are like spending their lives and they're working on it. Like that's a really beautiful moment. And then like two years in, three years in as the thing's growing and like starting to have its own strength and personality, like that's fantastic. But it was, I saw the pictures and I was like, oh yeah, I don't like gardens like right (laughs) when they're finished. It's like, it's their, their most awkward kind of, you know what I mean? Uh, it's like a teen, like a teenager <laughs> or something. Yeah. So anyways, uh, that's kind of an, an aside of your question, but, uh, yeah. Does that kind of answer your question? Or? No. Yeah, definitely. No, I think that's interesting. It made me think of like when I used to get a haircut and like the day I got the haircut, it would feel too crisp and like unnatural in a way. Right. Where it's yeah, like, it it's needs like to grow in and yeah, exactly. Yeah. It needs to like live a little. Yeah, Totally. When you when you first put boots on, you know what I mean, and you're like, ah, mm-hmm. oh, they're so stiff, and they everyone goes, look at my new boots. Anyways, <laughs> so yeah, yeah, it takes a little time. Yeah. So um, something I noticed on the, on the website was you kind of describe your work as post internet, which I thought was interesting for a landscape architecture firm. And I was, I'm curious to know how the internet has affected the way you sort of approach the natural world. Um. Well, um, what I found is that. Um, I think we live in a time like right now that this present moment in society, like all the terrible things aside, let's just talk about like the good things um, for a second uh, is that we like exist in this moment of like uh, recollage and sampling and uh, kind of hybridity. Um, and I think whether chicken and egg internet, uh, that happening because of the internet or the internet made that or whatever it is. Uh, these are also like bigger questions, but, um, I would say that the, the presence and, uh, power of the internet, even though I think the internet is wildly problematic, but one of the things that it does is, uh, it's made everything present uh, throughout all of history. Like it's all like here now and like ready for the taking. Uh, meaning, uh, whereas, whereas landscapes usually came as like these, like, uh, examples of greater cultural overtures, so to speak, uh, like almost symptomatic of like the large cultural zeitgeist that like they accompanied, like that they went along with. I think the world is much more like mixed up and crazy, uh, and eclectic and all over the place. Uh, and I think that's like the zeitgeist of this moment. And whether that's good or bad is like, I think a different conversation, mm-hmm. but uh, we say post-internet because uh, previously I had heard a lot of firms uh, refer to themselves as like almost post-war. So like the, the biggest post-war meaning post-World War II. Uh, so like the biggest like historical occurrence uh, for many of the like kind of larger old guard offices who prevailed prior to Terremoto uh, that was like the biggest uh, historical event. And so what moving forward culturally like had a lot to do with like the reaction from that like historical world event. I would argue that in the case of Terremoto, the creation of the internet is like the biggest historical world event that's kind of like shaped culture like uh, around the time our office has been doing work. Mm-hmm. Um, and then so the details therein are simply that uh, everything is kind of available for the taking and for sampling at all times. And I think you'll notice in our body of work, uh, we often reference 
Japanese gardens, uh, English gardens, French gardens, uh, desert gardens, Mediterranean gardens. And so there's like this kind of like sampling of garden types uh, that people might, people like prior to the internet might not have been quite as comfortable like doing a garden that referenced other garden, multiple garden types within a single setting. So yeah, that's kind of like a drawn out way of like saying like what post-internet means. It's like the presence of the internet allows us to create these landscapes that are quite hybrid and referential um, in nature. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, you mentioned just now like referencing these different types of of gardens from around the world and I assume at different times of the world as well. But something that sort of struck out to me, at least in terms of my own sort of context, is the work of artists like Carl Andre and Andy Goldsworthy and Robert Smithson, where they sort of are using these, you know, this material art and integrating it into nature in a way that it almost feels like it could have been like that for 30 years, you know? And, Mm -hmm. uh, I wonder if like the that sort of like art world is something that you draw on outside of the sort of landscape uh, like scope or industry as well. Yeah, uh, very much. I think we're kind of as a practice, we're more informed and inspired by art than we are like other landscape architecture offices, mm-hmm. for example. Um, and I think like if you, you're going to talk uh, like on the touching on like the works of like uh, land artists, like uh, you just named. Um, yeah, I think uh, there exists in our work, not in every project, but we've done things like with huge timbers or boulders, for example, that I know in my mind that uh, spiritually that like I did like a circle, almost like a halo of like these large boulders, like underneath the canopy of an oak tree. Mm-hmm. And if I'm honest with myself, uh, that's probably like a spiritual departure from like the work of Mono Ha, which was this incredible kind of Japanese land art um, uh, kind of art movement or art group uh, that I have studied at length and probably secretly somehow through exposing myself to their work, uh, then my work is like forever, like slightly informed or skewed. Like, you know, it's one of those things where Mm-hmm. I'm a believer that like everything lives on everything is lives on in everything. So uh, you are, I am a culmination of all the books that I have ever read uh, mm-hmm. in a way. So yeah, uh, very much in that regard. Um, and I'd also almost say that less Goldsworthy, but like uh, um, who would be? I guess Monoha is kind of like a big one, uh, like Soloit as well but uh these kind of more minimalist artists and these kind of land artists um or smithson for example Mm -hmm. so much of what they did um actually i'm a heiser as well it's i think a big um is a big inspiration but they're in many regards what they tried to do was to do as little as possible but in a way that had maximum effect Mm -hmm. and increasingly as we as terry motor like continues to develop and evolve and create a body of work some of the projects that are most difficult and most problematic and most interesting to us are projects that require us to do as little as possible um Mm -hmm. and i guess therein lies the trick of minimalism uh Mm -hmm. because uh 
doing a lot of stuff is almost easier than doing nothing. Uh, yeah. And so it's our, yeah, I went and visited this house the other day. It's in Neutra. It's in the hills of Glendale. We're probably going to work on it. And really, if I think if we do it right, like our our hand as a design office, like we'll hopefully barely register, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Uh, it needs to just, it needs a little bit of clarification. A few things need to be like deleted and edited. But really, if I'm kind to this existing beautiful piece of architecture that exists next to this beautiful chunk of native wilderness, like Terramoto shouldn't really be present. Uh, and I actually would say that that's kind of a thing that does definitely, I think, increasingly sets us apart from most design practices is that we're quite interested in illegibility, like not being able to read the like design. Um, I don't know if that's a function of the fact that it's kind of like a embarrassing time to be a human right now a little bit. Um, <laughs> or it's also a function of the fact that really uh, in some contexts, it's really the landscape should recede and let like nature and buildings like do all the speaking for them. So I don't say that like in a submissive way, that's not always the way we labor, but it's something that like has been increasingly like popping in my mind. So, yeah, I mean, I think that that's really interesting. And I think, you know, it's funny because I imagine, you know, it's it like you said, it's sometimes it's easier to do more and harder to do less. And it's I imagine it's also easier to sell doing more in terms of like a commercial um, application. But, you know, it made me think of one of my favorite artists personally is Robert Irwin, you know, and a lot of his work done is, you know, just putting a line through an empty room. And the effect of that is then you go out into the world and you notice these details that you didn't notice before and it can shift your perspective on on your experience. Um, totally. Uh, it's a, like a great dream of mine is that I'll know like, I'm not that, that I've achieved Zen, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh, it's a dream of ours that one day we can convince a client to do absolutely nothing. Uh, I don't know how you write a design fee proposal for that. Um, But like, uh, if like through conversation and dialogue, perhaps uh, a client might be missing the fact that uh, he actually has a beautiful native landscape in many regards and is just simply unaware that it's an ecological system uh, that a lot of people don't read, that it's simply not, it doesn't read as a legible, distinct thing to them. But it would be a dream if like we could convince somebody that, the existing conditions are beautiful and that they shouldn't do anything. That's, I don't know, a secret goal of mine. Um, but that being said, um, yeah, uh, it's a, it's a funny thing because also I, there's a strange thing, the elephant in the room to me when designers and architects and landscape architects talk about sustainability is that actually doing nothing is the most sustainable thing of all. Um, and so that I feel like there's a weird thing where, uh, construction is like conflated with sustainability. And to me, construction is inherently not sustainable. Uh, so to do as little as possible, like with the minimums, like the minimum minimum mechanical and like resource input is kind of like a secret through line or a theme of, of like our work as like it continues to evolve. And I actually think in many ways, that's kind of like the starting point of test block in a way is that... Right. Uh, on that project in particular, we're trying to create the maximum ecological output through the mi- minimum mechanical and material and resource like means as a way. So what's the most we can do with the littlest. Right. 
Yeah, I think, I mean, it'd be great to come back to the test pod, but I'm curious on that sustainable piece. Is that something that clients come to you for, or is that something that's more come at the forefront of your sort of ethos approaching a project? Um, sometimes clients come to us uh, with that, and they, they're, they're predetermined. My project's going to be LEED certified or whatever it is, all those like barometers of sustainability. Um, and they do. Uh, and if a client doesn't, and it's not important to them, then it's just like our quiet crusade, like mm-hmm. internally, where uh, we're not going to plant any plant any plants that uh, need a lot of water. The garden's probably going to very in an understated way be at least fifty percent native. Like those are just like things that like we do like internally as an office, mm-hmm. uh, because that's how we how we roll. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, something I am also interested in is. Uh, I imagine that you and the studio must have a pretty comprehensive knowledge of plant life, native and otherwise. And I'm curious to know how, you know, that comes into play when you're putting together a a project, because, you know, I, I imagine that there's some plants that just you would never put in a L.A. or Malibu landscape. But that said, when you walk around the neighborhoods here, it seems like the foliage from like property to property is just wildly different, more so than any other place I've lived. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm curious to know like how you sort of approach that and sort of use that sort of language of, of plant life. Um, yeah, Southern, Southern California and actually Northern California, but things are a little bit less rigid in Southern California in that... Um, we have the advantage and the disadvantage that um, like basically everything will grow here, right? Uh, where uh, you, if you go to Maine or if you go to Santa Fe or like uh, we've done, we're doing a project in Texas and oftentimes outside of California, uh, the weather is more specific or the weather or it freezes or there's snow or there's the, like these things. So that only like a specific number of plants will grow in these zones. And that's kind of freeing when actually when we work in like these different contexts, we're like, oh, it's like so much more direct figuring out what we're going to do botanically. Whereas in Los Angeles and San Francisco, actually not San Francisco is kind of a tough microclimate, but the the greater Bay Area and like Southern California, you can kind of put anything in the ground and it'll grow. Uh, Thus, what you do decide to grow uh, almost becomes a matter of personal expression and what's also wrapped in with that is ethics in a way, um, because the most ethical or, or the most like moral thing to plant is generally like native species. And that's because natives create a habitat for fauna that have evolved alongside this flora. Uh, and so you kind of keep these like uh, pre-existing, pre-colonial uh, existing ecological systems like going and moving and, and going along. That being said, Los Angeles, especially like the part of Los Angeles that I like live in, uh, is a, I live in Echo Park, uh, is, has historically like endured like many different like uh, waves of peoples and migrants and uh, like uh, people passing through. And uh, the movement of botany is inherently intertwined with like human movement as well. Mm-hmm. So uh I drive around my neighborhood and in large part, uh, it looks wildly Mexican because there's a thriving like Mexican American, uh, community like within my community. And so a lot of these plants that, uh, are of kind of intrinsic and inherent to Mexican, uh, and Mexican American garden making traditions 
are now present in my neighborhood. Mm -hmm. uh, and whether that's wrong or where that's right, it's like really complicated uh, and kind of it becomes a political conversation, like in many regards. Uh, but I think it's beautiful because Los Angeles in large part is a city of immigrants. Uh, and so, and all these immigrants have brought their botanical expressions with them to the city. And that's the city, kind of what you're describing from one property to the next, everything looks totally different. And that's kind of what it makes it so great in a way um, mm -hmm. is yeah, that, that mixing of like culture and peoples. Yeah, absolutely. I am. You made me think of uh, Michael Pollan's book and film, The Botany of Desire. I don't know if you've seen that. Yeah, yeah. I haven't. There's a movie. Yeah, there's a film about it as well. Okay, cool. I'll have to look that up. But that idea of the sort of yeah, you know, plants and people being on this journey together and influencing one another is pretty interesting. You'd like um, if you'd like that, you'd love the writing and the work of uh, Gil uh, G I L L E S Clement. Um, He's a French, he's like basically a French philosopher, but uh, he's a landscape designer. He refers to himself as a gardener, but he he talks about the third landscape, uh, which is, the, I think the first landscape is agriculture and the second landscape is like uh, gardens, basically, or like built landscapes. And the third mm -hmm. landscape is like this otherworldly, uh, it's like how plants like operate out, outside of human control as well. That mm -hmm. though we were like, you know, we're manipulating them and using them for whether it's food or decoration or ornament or all these things. But then beyond that, they're moving in a way that is completely beyond our purview and control. And that's the third landscape. Anyways, I think you'd love it. So yeah, that sounds cool. Yeah. Um, you know, you just briefly mentioned the idea of like food and potentially in a landscape and, you know, with uh, the whole sort of COVID isolation thing, there seems to be a bit of a trend of people planting more of their own gardens I wonder if that's something that has come into your purview in terms of the studio's work. Is there a demand potentially increasing for people to to bring that more into their own properties and gardens and, and grow their own food more? Uh, you know, there is. Um, and uh, it's one of those things that our first question when we ask people, uh, it's not a thing that we can force on a person. If a person isn't interested in growing their own food, then generally we won't force them to do it though what we'll probably do is sneak into their planting plan like fruit trees or things like that that there's certain things that like anybody appreciates like at a basic human level um but yeah um we love to build edible gardens jenny just built a small farm on this property it's kind of like this beautiful modernist home in the hills of like uh beverly hills or brentwood anyways uh like and it's a quite a quite a beautiful juxtaposition because there's this like kind of architectural home of like modernist significance. And now there's something really humble and uh, kind in that as you enter into like this beautiful modern home, there's basically this farm and there's mm -hmm. something like very casual and welcoming and like agreeable about that. You're kind of like the, the house like previously had this very like kind of modern, severe, minimalist like kind of landscape. Uh, and now it's like, there's going to be sunflowers everywhere and wildflowers everywhere. And so, we're in a, in a way like getting to like throw like uh, we're going to get we're getting to take that modern like s serious minimal thing and then like make it kind of a hippie. Uh, mm. And that's cool. I don't know. It's uh, it's creating like an interesting energy that I think like is really becoming of the house. Um, so we're excited. Yeah, that's cool. I like that sort of like almost humanizing it a little bit more. I wonder if, if from your experience when people do have food growing you know it creates a much more sort of intimate connection with the land 
I wonder if that, if you see that sort of inspiring change in people and, and just even how they appreciate and interact with the land. Yeah, I think, I think the, I hope that the, one of the like revolutions like within our lifetimes is like uh, a return to the soil, uh, a return to gardens being wild, ecological, agriculturally like abundant things. And people like really reconnecting to like the earth immediately outside the door of their homes. Uh, and I think like the perils of social media and the internet and like uh, a life that is almost in many ways increasingly like complex and anxiety and or click driven. Uh, I think like the solve or the antidote to a lot of the problems that come along with like social media and like these mm. The, the bad things of technology, like the antidote in large part, I mean, I'm, I'm the preacher. So, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Uh, in my mind, the antidote to like the perils of technology can very much be found in the soil immediately outside your house. And I think that's, I think there's a, an awakening and that's happening. Uh, I think mm-hmm. people are more interested in like making little gardens than they ever have been. So it's cool. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting time. I mean, it's an interesting one of time to be alive. Uh, there's a lot going on right now, clearly. But uh, if we like, just think about that, like during COVID, for sure, people are like paying attention to their gardens in a way they never have before. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, you know, it's one of those things that's so subtle and simple and free and, you know, outside of our doors, but getting our feet and hands in the grass and the soil is a really powerful uh, connection to develop and, and nurture for ourselves yeah. and for the land. Yeah, totally. Um, earlier, you kind of alluded to Jenny's abilities to sort of listen to the site. Jenny, I was wondering if you'd sort of share a little bit of that process. Um, I think the biggest thing is the trees. Uh, that's like one of the first things you you see um, is what are the existing trees? What species are they? What is the community that's there? I mean, David spoke to that oak woodland up in La Cañada that we worked on. That was a very obvious community um, that we knew how to work with ecologically. Sometimes it's less obvious. Sometimes there's a hodgepodge of trees on site and trying to make sense of that is sometimes a real challenge. And it's kind of fun. You know, we'll look at, see a species that's native, see species from China, species from the East Coast, species from Mexico. And then we'll just say, okay, well, we're going to roll with that. And this is going to be a Mexican, Chinese, Californian, mm-hmm. New England garden or whatever. And we'll, we'll seriously just riff off of those existing trees. The other thing is topography um, where, you know, L.A. Is, provides not only so much richness in its plant diversity, but in its topographic diversity, because a house on a ridge has such a different feeling from a house in a valley or a house down on the plains in the middle of the city, or a house on the beach. Um, so those are the other kind of cues we're looking for. Um, and I wish I could say that I could speak to the trees, but I can't. But we <laughs> did just meet an arborist recently who uh, claims to be able to speak to trees, and he's got mm-hmm. stories about, he's got all kinds of stories that demonstrate his ability to speak to the trees, and we're excited to start working with him. <laughs> Maybe I can. Maybe David and I can start learning how to actually talk to the trees 
Um, but yeah, it's all about context. So just looking at what's there, um, looking at the adjacent homes, trying to figure out, okay, do we want to block this view? Do, do we want to celebrate and enhance this view? Um, and like I said before, because uh, so many of the houses we work on are on these little lots in LA, everything gets compressed. And so something like a neighbor's tree becomes so, so, so important. Um, so sometimes you walk onto a site and there's just a giant tree and you're like, well, it's all about that because yeah. we can't cut it down. So I would say trees and topography are kind of uh, the main things. I mean, there's, there's a million super subtle things that you really should be paying attention to as a landscape architect. Uh, and I don't know that we always hit every note, uh, but we do our best. But um, yeah. Yeah, no, that sounds cool. And I, I like the idea of working with somebody who speaks to trees. I know a friend of mine up in Canada was putting a well into his place and he ended up finding like a water douser. And I think it's interesting to work with these different, you know, people that have these skill sets that are ultra connected to sort of the energy and the elements that are going on. Have you read Braiding Sweetgrass, Ryan? I have it on my list, but I haven't got into it yet. It's a good one. Um that I think kind of speaks to what David was talking about before about like just quiet, like quietly working on the landscape rather than like a big intrusive act of construction. And the author talks a lot about her kind of indigenous ways of working with plants. And it's not necessarily like, don't touch it. It's actually like work with it and listen to what the plants need and what they want. And there's a very like reciprocal relationship that happens. Um, the example that I love the most from that book is that the stands of sweetgrass, which is like a very important plant to her um, indigenous community, the, the stands of sweetgrass that have been harvested and tended to by people over several decades, if not centuries, those are actually the healthiest stands those those are like the healthiest and mo most robust ecosystems of this grass mm -hmm. so that to me is a metaphor for another way that i'd love to keep pushing our practice uh david says like he'll achieve zen when he can do nothing and i think for me i i feel like i would feel enlightened if we could convince all of our clients that instead of a big construction project what you're going to do is just start taking care of your land. That it's actually less about the designer and more about the actions and the physical labor and the physical, like what is somebody doing with their hands in the ground? Mm -hmm. That act is so important and I think does take on a spiritual component. I mean, I try to tell my clients, if you get out there and weed, you won't need to pay for therapy. Like weeding is... <laughs> cheaper and just as effective as therapy. Um, yeah. So that sort of like spiritual side of um, working with the plants and having like a, a tight relationship is something that I would love to like push our clients towards. But I think you only get there and it kind of goes back to what you were talking about with the food systems and people mm -hmm. wanting to like tend their own land and grow their own food. I do hope that that movement only continues not only for the fact that you get food out of it, but the fact that then you are kind of spiritually connected to your soil when you are out there tending to it. Um, yeah. 
it does create a really special connection that you don't get by paying a contractor to come in and renovate and then you take a beautiful picture and you you don't touch it and you just pay a gardener to come Mm -hmm. to come work on it and all you do is go come in your pool and i think it's happening incrementally i think it's like i'm i hope that over the next like 20 years uh god willing of us like building uh landscapes in california like that's just more and more and increasingly the case uh, i think that and it's i think it's happening it's just like greater cultural change takes a little bit of time it's not instantaneous yeah yeah i agree with that for sure and i think you know just that idea of weeding and you know having your hands in the dirt and it's like oh seeing you know something as simple and common as a lemon growing on your property is you know it's, it's kind of magic when you when you develop that relationship it's like this plant is growing this incredibly flavorful you know fruit that's at perfect arms height for picking and it you know i don't have to do anything to it and it feels good and tastes good and and if we can sort of develop that sort of compassion and empathy for a plant or our our yard you know hopefully we can see how magic uh, how much magic there is in each human around us as well and bring that to one another beyond um i love that yeah you know and i think one of the places where that can absolutely be nurtured and really needs to be emphasized in a much greater way is with children and i've seen that you guys have done a couple projects with with schools um in the la area and i was wondering how those projects came out and how your sort of approach to integrating children and education with with the land has um yeah we've well like i said david and i met at a school across the street from where i live he was he was doing a pro bono project installing some vegetable beds at a garden there and that i think was also very symbolic for me like here's this company doing a project for free helping out a school supporting them in renovating their garden and since then that garden has there's there's been so much more momentum just that first act of putting in the veggie beds and fixing the irrigation now there's people parents from all over the neighborhood that come and volunteer and the garden now has a life of its own and that's been a really um, that's an example of like david came in and just did a super light touch just Mm kind of helped set up the infrastructure and just getting that right um inspired so many other people to like kind of glom onto the project. And now it's this big team of people. We have chickens, we're, you know, we're growing all kinds of things. We have all kinds of aspirations to keep it going. Um, And since then we've done a couple other school projects. Um, Some just kind of like landscapes for the school, but the ones we were most excited about are the playgrounds, the play spaces. And luckily the clients that we've had for these projects, I think have been attracted to Terramoto for our kind of like progressive and playful spirit. And these clients have been pretty well educated about um, the latest thinking, especially when it comes to young child, young childhood development um, and play for younger kids, because there's all kinds of new thinking about the value in um, dangerous play. And the value, you know, playgrounds in the 90s and in the 2000s just became these like sanitized, plastic, perfect, like almost computerized, digitalized things, very static and sanitized. And 
the new research says that that's actually bad for kids for their because play is so important to their development, their mm -hmm. their brain development. And when you sanitize the play space, it means that as they develop, they don't have that sense of um, resilience that comes from like falling and getting hurt or getting a splinter on a log because there's no opportunity to get hurt anywhere right. on the playground. So we had one client in particular who was very adamant about wanting the playground to be rough and natural. And that's like right up our alley. We were mm. like, yes, raw, you know, rocks, logs. Mm -hmm. a water source is kind of all you need for kids to have fun, right? And then they'll figure it out. There's also this all this new thinking about loose parts, which is kind of a funny phrase, but what it essentially means is that you don't have to buy kids toys. You can literally give them trash, like leftover right. pieces of wood from yeah. something you were making at home or collected bottle caps or... Um, egg, you know, egg cartons is like the classic example. And so you collect trash and you reuse it and just set it out in a beautiful way and the kids figure out what to do with it. So we've done a couple projects that um, incorporate some of these pedagogical ideas, which is fun for us to explore that side of things. Like what's the forefront of learning theory for yeah. young kids? Um, and then we've also been really lucky to have clients that want to keep the playgrounds rough and rugged. So we're using a lot of stone and um, DG, things that you wouldn't normally see in a playground yeah. or things that up until I would say in the last like five years, there is now a movement towards natural playgrounds. It's definitely becoming more like central to the conversation about play. Mm -hmm. um, but up, up until five years ago, you didn't really see that. And so we're, we're excited and we feel lucky that we've been able to do a couple of projects that have that spirit in them. Yeah, no, that's super interesting. And yeah, I didn't really know too much about that, but it's very cool to hear. And it's, it's great that there are, um, you know, education places that are taking that approach. And we'd love to do more projects like that. Um, it's tough because so many schools, especially the public schools, which are the ones that need it the most, mm -hmm. they, you know, very cash strapped. But I will say I have started to see LAUSD um, open their minds about renovating schoolyards here in LA that have historically been, or at least for the last several decades, been mostly just asphalt. Mm -hmm. And now they're starting to depave and put in trees and native plants and collect the water and hold it on site rather than just running it down into the sewer. So right. I'm starting to see some changes um, from the top down, which is... Yeah. And it seems like there may be more of a need for some outdoor classes and schooling. So that might inspire that to evolve a little bit quicker. I hope so. I mean, as a parent who has a child, my child is in LAUSD right now. And, you know, the teachers are doing a really wonderful job of doing what they can remotely. Um, but it does make me sad to think that we uh, just so quickly went, okay, well, we'll just all go online. And nobody said, well, hold on, can't we figure out an outdoor classroom? I just, mm -hmm. I don't know if it's a bureaucratic thing that makes it impossible, but um, there, you know, all these schools are just sitting empty now. And I just, I wish that LAUSD could figure out a way to take this as an opportunity to actually introduce outdoor learning, outdoor yeah. learning as a part of the curriculum. If I were in charge, yeah. <laughs> that's what I do. 
but whatever. <laughs> yeah. Well, I imagine that they'll need some guidance and help from like a firm like Terramoto because, you know, it's hard for, you know, that industry or company or you know, organization to make those sort of changes and be agile. And, and also, like you said about the, the, you know, sterilized playgrounds, that's like a, you know, that's uh, we have a pretty sterilized society, you know, for the most yeah. part. So it's like, everyone needs to approach that um, with a little bit more of getting back to that sort of organic connection and interaction and, and the way of learning and, and growing. Um, you know, just on that topic, like taking a sort of a zoomed out look, um, from my perspective, if I was to go and study landscape architecture, I can't imagine these are topics that I would have been exploring later on. Is any of this stuff like things that you would learn in, in school or even at other firms, or is this a pretty unique sort of branch of this um, industry that, that Terramoto is now exploring? Are you referring specifically to the educational project? Yeah, like, chil- like children's education, um, even the more like philosophical uh, art yeah. influences that you guys have. I think it depends. I think actually like some of the top landscape architecture programs do expose students to some of those things. Like some mm-hmm. of the best programs in the country tend to be more kind of zoomed out and um, theoretical and um, exposing students to the importance of getting into the, philo- the philosophy behind what your client is doing and how that then manif- manifests into a landscape. So I'm pretty sure that the school David went to, which was Berkeley, um, teaches that way. So, and the the school I went to, which was university of Virginia also teaches that way. And while I didn't, I never had specifically like a schoolyard project. Um, I'm sure that they've had them. And I do think the best, some of the best professors, um, do incorporate those kind of philosophical things into the learning. It kind of depends on where you go to school and what kind of projects you have. Yeah. Um, yeah. Some schools are more technical. Some schools have more of an emphasis on learning how to draw and learning the fundamentals of site design, which are just as important. Other schools lean more heavy on the theory. So it just depends on what program you go to. Right. So um, I was wondering if you could also share now a little bit about the test plots and sort of what sparked that idea and, you know, what it, the sort of concept is behind starting those sure yeah um i think it goes back to what we were talking about before this idea of like the spiritual side of having your hands in the soil um well on a more on a more kind of practical level it actually started out um when david and i we both live in echo park our old office used to be just down the street and we're right um at the doorstep of elysian park So a lot of us in the office, just that was our park. We would go running, take our dogs there, take our kids there. And that park has been really struggling in the past couple of decades. Um, Just drought. The drought was really rough on that park. And the irrigation infrastructure was, is almost all decimated, except for down in the very bottom of the park where they water the lawns, which is a super important public space where people come and they have birthday parties and you see moon bounces go up and people are grilling and stuff. So there's that kind of like lawn recreation area of Elysian Park. And then there are all these just wild hillsides, which in decades past were planted with things like eucalyptus, which 
they just looked terrible after the drought. A lot of them, like almost all died back. Some of them are starting to come back now after the rains from last year. But the LA Times had an article a couple years ago about how the forest in Elysian Park was, they called it a zombie forest, and that it was like an ecological disaster and potentially a fire disaster waiting to happen because you had all these dead trees. So we started going to the Citizens Committee to Save Elysian Park, which is just like a local community group. Mm-hmm. And we're going to the meetings for a couple years and trying to figure out how can we insert ourselves. Like, we're here, we want to help, what can we do? And through that time, we came up with the concept of test plot. Um, and it started out actually as like an idea to do just some guerrilla gardening. We thought, let's not even get permission. Let's just mm-hmm. go start tending to the park because through our experience of being in the park and attending these meetings, what we saw was that rec and parks is just so cash strapped. They do not have the resources to take care of the park. They have the resources to mow and to keep the the lower areas watered where the parties and things or the, you know, the, the main area of public use, but all of these hillsides and trails, mm-hmm. just years and years and years of drought and neglect. And so it, it, the idea was born out of like uh, uh, an idea that we just need to start taking care of the park. There just need to be people there tending to it is the main thing. It's like we don't need a lot of money to redesign something and come in and do a whole new capital project. What if we just convinced people to come take care of the park with us? So, um, yeah, we came up with this idea to just get some native plants established in the park. There are not, there are some native plants in the park, but the, the invasive grass and mustard situation is so out of control. There's just, they've taken over so many hillsides in the park hmm. and the native oaks and the native walnuts um, have been declining over the years. So the idea was to start to introduce more uh, diversity, more plant diversity into the park. Instead of the other, the other thing is that the city is so focused on trees, which is great. Uh, we love trees. I mean, I spoke a couple minutes ago about how they're they're one of the most important elements of a site. But the city, like I said, they're so strapped for resources. They're putting all their kind of ecological focus into um, increasing LA's tree canopy, which is super important and it has to be done. It's from a point of view about climate change and mitigating the urban heat island effect and just helping to like clean LA's air and cool the temperature down in the city. Mm -hmm. The problem is, um, because of climate change and because of pests, um, that have been introduced over the last several decades. One in particular is called the shot hole borer, and it's a teeny tiny little pest that gets into trees and will kill an entire forest if it if left unchecked. Mm. Um, they their philosophy is not to plant native trees, so they are now looking at mostly Australian trees that are designed to handle intense heat and sun and long periods of drought because their number one goal is to restore the tree canopy. Mm-hmm. So we, we saw all that. And anytime we tried to talk about ecology, like what about native shrubs or sub shrubs, which, mm-hmm. you know, when, when you talk about the health of a forest, for example, it's all about all the layers of the forest. Yes, trees, but you also need all those other little layers because mm-hmm. that's really important to the feeding and the habitat of all kinds of animals. So 
we basically said, okay, well, if no one else is going to look at the shrub lair, then we will. So we just, we got, we, we did end up getting permission. We decided not to go gorilla. We got permission mm-hmm. from Wreck and Parks. Hesitant. Um, we got very, very hesitant permission. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Um, and to this day, we try not. They basically were like, you can do it, but it has to be called temporary and there has to be no way for people to like inhabit these spaces. So we were like, sure, we'll say whatever you want us to say. It's fine. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, so we, um, we just started last year, about a year ago now, and we consulted with a lot of different restoration ecologists and native plant growers. And it's been a really wonderful project for us as an office because we've been learning so much through the process. I mean, back to this idea of how important process is. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't have a ton of experience doing ecological restoration. We'd love to keep doing more of it because we think that that's one of the things that the city needs and mm-hmm. especially the wildlands around here. Um, but yeah, so we consulted a lot of different people, learned a lot of different things, and then we just started and we got a group of volunteers to come out and water these plots and in order to flush out the invasive seed bank. So we watered them to trick the weeds into growing. Mm. And then we came in and weeded all the weeds and then we watered again and, and did it again. And then we planted our native plants and we timed it to, with the rains. And so we're trying to, like David was saying, minimize the amount of work that has to go in because resources and money are an issue. Rec and parks can't do anything. They don't have the time or money or people. Let's do it in the community and let's keep it as simple as possible. Um, so and, we're now, yeah, go ahead. And almost to your earlier point, Ryan, about like people connecting with land and soil, like, uh, there was like Jenny, like on a sign up day with uh, our partner in the project Saturate LA and Max, uh, like immediately it became very clear that there was a lot of people in the immediate neighborhood who really wanted to help. Uh, and I think mm. it like on the, the, this tiny little pilot project has kind of like struck a chord. And I just feel like it's almost like Jenny now, like part of her job is like uh, controlling the exuberance of all these like interested people who want to help. <laughs> but also like uh, natives shouldn't be watered that often. So like stop watering, like things like that. But anyways, those are all things that we're navigating. But I think in doing this little project and like, like the small, but like really robust reaction uh, it's gotten from the community, I think speaks to the fact that people want to help, uh, but we, they need direction uh, as well. We couldn't just like say, Hey, everybody go start planting shit in the Legion park like that. There needs to be like kind of controls and design controls and ecological controls as well, which is kind of like our role in the project. But like, if you think about it in like the late 60s, like early 70s, like even Central Park was like in a really bad way in New York. And a group of like neighbors uh, who happen to be extremely wealthy. <laughs> I think our, our model is quite different, but neighbors essentially uh, rallied, organized, raised money. So I think maybe now we're at a time where through organizing and being thoughtful, we can kind of like maybe usher at least a a little chunk of Elysian Park into like a new era. So there's a long game that we're hoping. We also um, have recently been expanding the test plots. So some folks from USC who are in the landscape architecture department there were interested in what we were doing, this idea of like community restoration. Mm -hmm. And we are now doing a studio on test plot um, 
uh, just across the river from Elysian at Rio de los Angeles State Park with um, a third year master's degree studio at USC, group of landscape architecture students. And uh, they're going to be basically taking that model and trying to replicate it there specific to that particular site and that particular park and they'll adapt and modify as needed. But it's exciting that that idea, uh, and we hope that the idea is replicable and people can actually take this idea of community restoration and take it to other parts of the city. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely encouraging that the response has been that positive. And I imagine there are lots of people that, like, you know, you guys are inspired because you use the park and you want to be able to continue using it. There's a lot of people that probably want to be involved, but just don't know how to or what to do. Um, so, you know, we need the sort of guidance and, and shepherding that you're providing. So, you know, that's that's really cool. If if somebody wants to find out more about this and get involved now, um, what's the best sort of course of action for them? They can go to the TestPlot website, which is just www.testplot.info, and they can find out how to get in touch with me there. <laughs> okay, perfect. Yeah. So probably just, um, I think I just really have one more question you know, and it's kind of carries on from this and, and weaves back a little bit, but you know, if somebody wants to re-engage and connect with their own land, um, in a healthy way, I wonder what your sort of recommendations would be for somebody to, to do that, uh, where to start, um, either resources or even something, you know, like as practical as what plants to maybe look at. You, Jenny? David, gonna, no, I was going to say you, you start, you start. I'll take it Um, what do you do? You go, if you want, and you didn't, you historically hadn't gardened. Uh, well, I think the first thing you need to do is, uh, just, you need to try and you need to acknowledge that gardening is a process and it's like a lifetime thing. Like I garden and Jenny gardens, but and now I would consider myself a pretty darn good gardener, but I wasn't always that way. I, I've become that way through killing a lot of plants, uh, learning uh, what goes here and what goes there and how to water. And it's just, there's no way to learn it. It's not like a thing that's really well, super well learned, like on the internet or reading books. You can kind of get some knowledge from both of those things, but really you should just start. Um, I have a suggestion. I'm going to interject, David. So I was really fortunate when I moved into this house and I got my first garden in that my next door neighbor is a retired landscape architect and slash hippie gardener. Um, And there's no fence between our yards. And so I have just been blessed by like running into him in the backyard and getting little pieces of wisdom from him. Hmm. So something, especially in a time right now when like, people are very lonely. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe there's someone older in the community that you see gardening in their yard, engage with them, ask mm-hmm. them what they're planting, ask for advice. I mean, that to me, having read my neighbor as um, a source of advice and guidance mm-hmm. has been one of the biggest things. And then you kind of go off on your own, but to have somebody that is, that does have a little bit of gardening experience, just open your eyes and say, oh no, don't take down that tree. That tree's really great leave that shrub, take down that shrub. And then, and then you just get started. You get started Mm -hmm. out there, like pruning, taking things down, cleaning up the yard. I mean, cleaning up your yard is just one of the first steps, Mm -hmm. just going out there and pruning plants and shaping them into a lovely form is something anybody could really do. 
Um, but yeah, I would say like, ask people uh, mm -hmm. for help. Sorry, I jumped in, David. No, it's totally fine. I was also going to do a shameless plug for plant material. Um, in that, uh, as a, I started a side business uh, with a friend of mine who uh, is kind of like this retail merchandising uh, awesome guy. And it's called Plant Material, and it's in Glossel Park. And it's a small, cool little nursery that essentially is a reaction to perhaps this impulse that you're describing, Ryan, in that mm -hmm. uh, about 50% of our plant offering is native, and the other 50% of our plant offering is edible and regionally appropriate. So it's kind of like, it's the opposite of where you go to most nurseries and they just sell everything and whatever because they just want to make money. Mm -hmm. Kind of like a, it's a nursery with like a, a highly curated particular point of view where you can't come here and get something that's irresponsible or invasive or whatever. It's kind of like, here's the stuff that you should be planting in Southern California at this moment in time. So that's my shameless plug. Uh, but uh, <laughs> that, that's one way of doing it. Uh, it's like to go somewhere where uh, they have knowledge. Like in Theodore Payne, it's also where mm -hmm. it's a wonderful like uh, native plant nursery like in Sunland uh, that is a wealth of information as well. Um, so yeah, just get it, just start planting stuff and learning as you do. And it. it's okay. It's okay if you fail. We all fail. You just have to keep keep your hands in the dirt, and that's that's the best thing. Yeah, it, it really seems like you know whether you're going to your neighbor, you're going to plant material, or you're just going into your yard. It's about listening learning and just evolving because we planted our first garden here um in the springtime and you know it's just like navigating the different bugs at different times and trying to yeah. you know keep it safe but keep it open and and just growing and how often do you water it and it's definitely can be disheartening at times but also rewarding and beautiful it's kind of i guess like really any relationship you know and it takes patience sure. and, and learning and listening I love For that. Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's, that's super good. And I really appreciate again, the time and the insight and, um, you know, the work that you guys are doing both with the test plots and, and the residential and commercial stuff, the stuff with the schools, uh, it's really inspiring and, you know, it's been, um, inspiring for me and my partner. And, you know, I've shared it with other people that are, you know, exploring their own yards and stuff. So, um, cool, It'll be exciting to see the the evolution of Terremoto. Um, so thanks again. You're welcome. Thanks, thanks for reaching out to us and like pulling landscape into your world. I think that's really awesome. Yeah, no, it feels important, um, you know, that we connect with nature. And I think there's just as much opportunity for creative expression um, and in a spiritual, emotional and physical way, you know, like sometimes for me, just you know, clearing the yard or clearing a path or moving some dirt around can be so much more of a rewarding workout than, you know, going for a run or going to the gym or something. Or like you said, pulling weeds can be like having therapy. And I think those, that's really true. <laughs> All right. Thanks. Well, thank Thanks, you. Ryan. Yeah. I appreciate nice to it. Meet you. you too. Hopefully talk again soon. Yeah. Bye. 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 I hope you enjoyed this episode. Whether you listen to it on Spotify, Apple, or through our website, it would be great to hear your feedback and thoughts. If you're able to leave a review, it'll really help us share the message and share the podcast with more people. Thank you.